You recently said there's only 15 investors that know how to consistently make money for LPs. That's a very small number of investors. And Especially why when did you... three of them are on this on this call, you know? Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's closer to 20. Maybe I underestimated it. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really, really correct that. You have to be comfortable with yourself. You have to not be ultra self-absorbed. You have to have the polymathic ability to like rebuild a model from scratch for every new business, every new entrepreneur you're meeting. And not many people on the planet have that. Tyler and I uh, got really excited about getting Jeff Lewis on the podcast for a couple of reasons. Number one, he is he is an investor by profession, but he's an operator by founding Bedrock. And so he, he checks both of those boxes. He also is in with, I would argue, the best list of founders from, from any of the recent firms. Sam Altman, Parker Conrad, Guillermo, Garrett. Like these are these are incredibly influential companies. And so getting to getting to have Jeff talk about what he looks for, what he sees, how he invests is something Tyler and I were, were really excited to dive into. Yeah, Jeff is uh, Jeff's a special talent. You can tell from Twitter and some of the interviews he's done. We're stoked to have him on the IO podcast, and we're going to cover a bunch of stuff that I don't think he's talked about before. So hope you all enjoy it, and thanks for tuning in. All right, so first question is this, Jeff. In a, in a kind of inter- interesting time in venture capital right now, you're seeing like every fund uh, maybe – even downsize, struggle to fundraise. And then here comes Bedrock a few weeks ago with an announcement that you're going to raise your fund size. So talk about that. How are you making that decision in a time where that doesn't seem to be the the normal case? Why'd you decide to do that? What was the rationale? Walk us through it. Sure. Well, we've, we've already done it. So it's already com- completed and, and definitely was a unique, a unique move. I think maybe one other firm uh, that I'm, I'm familiar with has done it over the past sort of decade. And I think it's just sort of been the two of us that have done it. I mean, the, it really stems from what's worked well for us. And so, you know, we, we founded the firm in sort of late 2017, launched it in 2018. And over the past 12 months, we've had a really nice window into what's worked versus what's not worked for us over all of these, not all of these years, but coming up on six years now. And one of the things that has really worked is we've, we believe correctly concentrated capital into some of the very best uh, private technology companies. So companies like OpenAI, like Vercel, Rippling, Flock Safety. Um, And in order to sort of keep running that strategy, uh, particularly in this environment that we think we're in now for the next several years, where you really can't can't count on high velocity follow-on financing rounds from other VC firms, you really need to be you know, our whole ethos is sort of in search of narrative violations. It's on my T-shirt. I think you have to be ultra counter-narrative now. I think very few of these uh, startups actually grow to the scale that you really need to drive the venture outcomes. So we just wanted to make sure we'd have enough capital um, in Bedrock for our newest fund to both, um, you know, make several investments in these companies that we think are going to become transcendent. And then importantly, really back those entrepreneurs round after round after round and size each of the rounds such that they're large enough uh, for them to really get to the next milestone. 
frankly, without having to rely on like syndicates. Like we love working with other investors. We love collaborating with folks. We're, we're totally down to do that. Uh, but we want to make sure that uh, we can we can do an entire round for an entrepreneur we really believe in uh, if no other firms believe in them. So, Jeff, how did that go over with LPs? Obviously, it, it happened relatively quickly. So the, the answer is they were in. But what were what were the questions or how did they think about that as as a strategic partner there? Well, it's super unusual. So it's nothing that's done very often. I think it was was doable for us uh, because the fund that we upsized is our newest fund. It's a 2023 vintage uh, and just a small portion of it uh, has been deployed. Uh, and most of that capital has been deployed into into one one company, OpenAI. So you basically have a dynamic where you could have the upsize structured where the new limited partners coming in are coming in at a uh, a nav that reflects the sort of trajectory that OpenAI has had since we made that initial investment via Bedrock 4. So your existing investors aren't really getting diluted. The, their exposure to that position isn't getting diluted. Uh, that's part one as we structured it um, from a document uh, documentation standpoint to avoid diluting uh, the, the LPs who backed us earlier with Bedrock 4. And then part two is uh, the folks that we brought in are just highly long-term strategic uh, limited partners for the firm as we look ahead and think about uh, where Bedrock uh, is going to be going over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, it made sense to sort of add just a few really long-term strategic partnerships. And luckily, our existing LP base understood it. They got it. They understood the rationale. They know our strategy is concentrating capital onto the top few companies. And quite honestly, for running that strategy, our fund sizes are are pretty small relative to the the very you know small number of other firms that that also do a, con a capital concentration strategy. So it made sense. It was pretty non controversial, uh, and we we mechanistically you have to get the approval of all of the LPs to do it. So we have, you have to actually go through a formal process to make a change like this. And I'm I'm grateful that we had the high conviction uh, limited partners to, to pull it off, and we did it all in a few weeks. So I'm happy about that. Jeff, you've probably, while you were talking, it comes to mind like maybe the two most fascinating stories in tech over the last 18 months are the rippling fundraise that Parker put together in the middle of the whole, geez, what was the impetus SVB. there? It was like yeah, payroll SVB. SVB collapse. And then you have more recently the open AI, you know, the crazy week. Were you involved in both of these these rounds of financing? And if you are, I'd love to hear kind of the stories of both, if you're open to sharing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we were invested earlier uh, in, in both of those companies. So Ripley, so yeah, yes, as an investor and as a, a stakeholder was was involved uh, uh, on the periphery of, of both of those. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, with, with Rippling, I think what Parker pulled off, he raised half a billion dollars over a weekend. Um, after after SVB collapsed, uh, and it was unclear during that sort of forty eight hour period of time uh, whether um, you know what was going to happen, whether it would get bailed out or what was going to happen, and that to us at Bedrock is just an extraordinary example of why we hang our hat on assessing entrepreneurs. Like our whole, some firms differentiate on you know we understand a specific. Um, market sector better than anyone. Others are like, we're really good in this specific, you know, nuanced technology. 
Um, others are like value add services. Bedrock is we assess entrepreneurs and the Parker story and the Sam story, which we, we can get to in a second for us, like no one else on the planet in our view could have pulled off raising half a billion dollars in a weekend when the bank that banks like, you know, over half of the, the startup, the tech startups in the United States, something like that, uh, collapse. So that that's a testament to Parker. Um, you know, I I was of the mind that maybe he was being like one degree too paranoid, but but uh, in, in raising all that capital, I'm like, okay, it was like a lot of a lot of capital. There's, but he got it done on on good terms, and I and I think history will have proven that that was a a very wise move. And ultimately, we always defer to the judgment of the entrepreneurs here. Um, and then the Sam, the Sam thing was really for me um, funny and interesting. We've been invested there since uh, you know 2021, so it's been a while. I've known Sam and Parker both for like a decade plus at this point. Uh, and when the news with Sam came out, um, I was actually, uh, you know, I was I was pretty chill about it. Uh, we we of course had um, folks reaching out and asking what 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 the what the heck is going on here. Um, but but my theory was that um, was that somehow Sam would end up back at OpenAI and things would, would end up in a better spot than they were before. Uh, the, you know, the, the issue, the risk with OpenAI when we invested was the, the really unusual governance structure. It was sort of a known risk. We flagged it internally uh, before we made the investment decision, the original one in 2021, that, hey, this is a real risk. And uh, again, you know, we hang our hat on thinking we're really good at choosing the very few entrepreneurs who can navigate through just extraordinarily difficult situations. And I think Sam did a, a nice job of that as well with OpenAI. So kudos to Sam and Parker. <laughs> so let's, let's, uh, let's talk about this a little bit. When you talk about assessing founders and that being a superpower of bedrock, what's your actual process for doing that? And what are you looking for? I mean, look, the reality is there is no real process for it. The way in which we do it is spending just a tremendous amount of time getting to know these folks. And so oftentimes, you know, those are two extreme cases where with both Sam from OpenAI, Parker from Rippling, we knew both of them for over a decade before we, you know, invested. That's extreme. I'd say the minimum is like several quarters of getting to know an entrepreneur or a set of co-founders, the team they've built. Um, you know, if it's just, just one or two people, really intensively getting to know them, trying to understand what makes them tick, um, and you sort of try to assess them as people and you assess them through their vision for the company. And then you sort of triangulate the market, you triangulate the technology story uh, with that. But the, the starting point and ending point for us is, is the entrepreneur. So you just can't shortcut it. It takes a lot of time. And, you know, this is why when we look back to like, I was so frustrated in sort of 2020, 2021, when you had all of these rounds happening so quickly everything was over zoom and you know the rule that that i i tried to implement at bedrock i wasn't 100 percent successful at it but i tried my best to implement it was no investments where uh we, we only have met the people on zoom so mm. i was i was very religious quasi-religious about no investments unless we've spent time with the people in person and then i think we had maybe um one or two exceptions to that rule but we generally did a good job of implementing it which led to us not 
pacing as fast as other firms during that time period in terms of dollars out the door, which I think set us up really nicely uh, for Bedrock 4, our newest fund, where a lot of firms are having trouble, unfortunately, raising their next fund is where they, they just deployed way too quickly in 2021. And we didn't fall into that trap, luckily. That's awesome. So you mentioned spending time and you can't shortcut it. As you're spending time with these folks, what are some triggers of you're like, oh yes, this is this is someone we want to be in business with? What are you what are you looking for as you get to know them? Let me add on to that real quick, Jeff. Sterling and I have this phrase we'll use when we meet someone that starts to to vibe with us, where we get conviction that they're special. And the phrase is they're using the right shibboleths. It comes from the Old Testament. And it's a Jewish word that means they're saying things that make sense. It's a Hebrew word. They're saying things that, that uh, are almost secretive, that people know. And if they say it the right way, you know that they're special. So do you have any trigger points, as Sterling calls it, or, or shibboleths, where you're like, yeah, these guys are the right, right type that I want to work with? What are some of your shibboleths? <laughs> Sterling, you want to start? I can share some. Oh, yeah, for sure. So... Uh, I, I think anytime you find somebody who, uh, you know, the, the, the chip on the chip on your shoulder, like you have something to prove. And most of the time they kind of completely made it up. They don't actually need more reputation or more. It's just how they tick. Like they are, they are on a mission to prove that they can do very difficult and, uh, and overcome the impossible. Um, I, I think about people who they don't, they do they do the they play the game because they love it and they work really hard because they love it not because somebody's making them do it or there's some external force um, and, and there's there's a couple but those are two that come come to mind as we're thinking about some of these entrepreneurs that bedrocks invested in yeah adding on to that they usually because they love it are by nature workaholics because this idea of work-life balance is it's like my my life kind of is my work they kind of blend together and so they're playing a broader game than people who view things through a work-life balance lens. And, and the way they talk tend to kind of convey that. I would say those are a few of the shibboleths we talk about. Any of those resonate, Jeff? What would you add? Well, I, I think they both resonate. I'd put a little bit of a spin on them. And then I want to actually challenge the notion of the shibboleths altogether, although I, 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 do, I do like the Old Testament a lot. But I want to challenge it in the, in the context of, in the context of, um, of entrepreneurs. Look, I, I'd say the... The work-life integration, um, where the work and the life are, are integrated into this healthy, um, sort of cohesive one, I think that's what that's what the best entrepreneurs ultimately achieve. It's really hard to get there, and so I think it takes. You know, I, I don't think entrepreneurs start out with any work-life integration. I think it's all work. These truly transcendent entrepreneurs, it's all work. But ultimately, to like continue building and actually do this for year after year after year, decade after decade, ideally in these like extreme cases where it really becomes their life's work. You need to figure out how to integrate your family, integrate your life and, and make everything healthy and, and synergistic. And so I definitely agree with, you know, work-life balance is kind of a narrative mirage, but I, I would call it sort of work-life integration, something you want to seek out. And then, yeah, the, I call it vengeance, Sterling, the chip off, the chip on the yeah. shoulder thing. I sort of, I just, you know, also a little bit biblical, I think, as, as a concept. Um, but, you know, I, I, I like to see some element of um, they feel wronged in some way. Uh, that's idiosyncratic to me. Not everyone at Bedrock is obsessed with this in the way that, in the way that I am. But I like to see some sort of something in their history 
where they can articulate, you know, I felt wrong by this. It could have just been like something didn't go their way in the world. It could have been, you know, someone that they worked with sabotaged them or something like that. I think Parker's talked quite, quite openly about um, how he felt quite sabotaged with Zenefits, his startup prior to Rippling, on um, that sort of helped inspire him to, to get started with Rippling. So I, I like both of those. But on the notion of shibboleths, I actually, um, the thing that when I think about our, our best entrepreneurs in our portfolios, I actually think they're each like really idiosyncratic and end of one. And, and I, I think what maybe is most striking about it is how completely themselves each of them is. So when I think about, um, you know, Garrett Langley from Flock Safety, like he doesn't pattern match. He doesn't, he's not like, oh, Garrett reminds me of this, yeah. this other entrepreneur. You know, Guggerm from Vercel, uh, Argentinian immigrant, created Next.js, um, then built basically a company, Vercel, on top of that. Um, his story is like completely out of one. Like he doesn't have the way that he carries himself, the way he talks about the business, uh, his vision over the next, you know, five, 10 years, it doesn't match to anything else. And so there, I, I, I think like if there's a pattern that we're looking for here, it is just this hyper, individualistic, idiosyncratic, um, and they're very comfortable with who they are. You know, there's a there's a school of thought in venture capital that you want to invest in sort of very insecure people. And then I actually don't really subscribe to that. I think you want to invest in people who are, they, they might have a chip on, on their shoulder, something to prove, some vengeance. Um, but they are, they know who they are, they know what they're doing, and they're going to self-actualize in the world um, in, a, in a meaningful way through their company. Yeah, I, I like that, Jeff. Because to me, there, there are not the same shibboleths that get shared over and over again. The idea of a shibboleth is that somebody through their life experience has learned these principles, these truths, and then you pick up on them. But they're going to be different for every entrepreneur because they, 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 are, they are unique and they manifest in a unique way. And then you just hit on something that lights me up every time. It's this idea of being very authentic and very true to yourself. If you, if you like listen to a podcast, and you try to, oh, oh, Jeff likes to listen for these three things. I'm going to learn those three things and tell them every time I pitch. You know, it, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's, it doesn't work. It doesn't come off that way. I always tell people, if you're not being authentic, it's like trying to do a squat on one leg instead of two. You don't have your, your base. You don't have your power. Whereas if you, if you just show up authentic, you say the things that you believe and you articulate them clearly, you will attract the, the people that you're supposed to attract and you'll repel the people you're supposed to repel. And so I, I think, I think uh, I, I'm just uh, adding a big plus one to everything you were saying there, Jeff. For other listeners to the podcast and for Jeff's knowledge, we had Henry Ward, Cardus founder on, and he said essentially a version of this where it's like fundraising is not meant to be a sales process. It's meant to be a what did he call it, Sterling? A, a dating mechanism, a sorting yeah, mechanism. Sort, like, it was like sifting, yeah. Sifting. Like, are you on or are you off? I'm going to be who I am. Are you in or are you out? And he was going to be unabashedly who he was. And I think that's kind of what you're saying, Jeff, yeah? Exactly. Actually, it's funny you mentioned Henry. That's actually one of the, the passes that I, I really, really screwed up. And and uh, back back when I was an employee at another venture capital firm before, before starting Bedrock, uh, Henry came in. I, I, I've been friends with uh, Manu, who I think did his his pre-seed 
Yep. And uh, and Manu, I think, sent it uh, to me first to look at. And Henry, I remember that meeting still. It must have been, you know, whatever, eight, nine years ago now. Longer, probably. But I remember that meeting still. And he was completely, like, all cards on table. It's like, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Um, I'm not. And, and he was. Yeah, he was an N of one idiosyncratic entrepreneur. But... I, you know, screwed up that decision and didn't do the, didn't do the seed round, unfortunately. Why not? When you, yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, look, I don't actually remember the, I don't actually remember all of the, the reasons why I think that, uh, my, 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 my colleagues and I I think we had the sense that, um, the TAM for like cap table management, I think we got stuck on the TAM, um, and maybe missed the bigger story around, a expanding TAM and then B um, all of the ways in which you could expand that product beyond just like originally what they were doing, which is the digital cap table. Um, so I think we, we sort of had the wrong intuitions on the market, uh, I think was the reason that we, we passed ultimately there. So when, when you think about some of these things you've talked about with these amazing founders, like these are some of the best founders of our, of our generation. And you're talking about, you're talking about vengeance. You're talking about N of one. You're like these, these authenticity, some of this stuff. Do those characteristics carry to the best investors? Like, would you, would you consider, would you consider yourself or the other, the other firm leaders that you look up to, would you say that those are the same types of things that end up making people successful in VC? I think it, it's true for some of them. I think the, I think the, certainly like the, the folks that, that, that I respect, um, have pretty different styles. Like there's a way to do VC where, you're just hyper analytical. Um, you you sort of do a, a ton of due diligence, um, and 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 that can sort of work really well. I think Neil from Green Oaks is 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 really good at this, and he's someone that I we have a very different style. We both do lots of due diligence, but I think his his style is maybe um, a lot more understated, uh, but just extraordinarily analytical. You have this small team of folks doing a lot of analysis and research. And that can that can work really well, um, and uh, it's less. I, I like that because sort of it's not really about the VC, it's not about the investor, it's about the entrepreneur, and so you take sort of a backseat to the entrepreneur. In practice, we do that at Bedrock, but um, you know, like I founded the firm, and part of what I like to do is just be myself and share things that I've learned along the way. Here, it's been a it's been a it's been a rocky road uh, to get to this point, and so I, I want to help help entrepreneurs where I can. And really the way that, the way that I think about, you know, venture is there's sort of, you can, you can be a partner at a firm and that's awesome. And that's a great, that's a great thing. That's a great path for lots and lots of folks. You can have an amazing career. You can, you can do great stuff. Um, starting a firm from scratch is a totally different, um, uh, totally different Pandora's box. And, uh, and, and, and so there's a, like I, I believe Bedrock's a business. Um, you know, it's a different type of business than the the businesses we invest in. But I think about Bedrock as a business, and so I feel like there's a level on which the founders of these venture capital firms can actually relate to the to the entrepreneurs they're investing in, maybe on a slightly different level uh, than if you're you're not you know an, an entrepreneur yourself. And so you know, Vinod at Kosla is another one of these these folks I really look up to. Kirsten Green at Forerunner. Um, you know, she's really different strategy versus us, but 
you know, entrepreneurs lover. And all of these are folks who founded their own venture capital firms. So, I mean, it's brutally hard. I'm not advising anyone to do it, <laughs> but uh, I think you can, I think you can relate uh, to the entrepreneurs a little differently if you've done it. You were not new to venture when you founded Bedrock. Like you'd been, you'd been very familiar with it. And it, it sounds like it still might've even been harder than you thought it was going to be. Did it, did anything surprise you at like the level of difficulty of actually getting it off the ground? Uh, it, it's been, it's been like 10 X harder, an order of magnitude harder <laughs> than I, than I thought it would have been. And it's so funny because like from the outside looking in, everyone's always just like, Oh man, like you just had, you just had it like easy street here. You worked at Founders Fund, like it must have been so easy for you. It's been complete easy street. And like, you have no idea. You have no idea. But, but you know, what, whatever. I, uh, um, I think everyone, everyone who's, who, who's, who founds a business, it's, it's always a difficult journey. And, you know, it can, it can go in, in different directions for different folks. I'd say um, the thing that there were lots of things I knew were going to be really hard, like fundraising, I knew was going to be really hard. Building an actual, you know, identity as a firm beyond just myself that could stand the test of time, I knew that was going to be really hard. Um, making great investments, I knew that was going to be really hard. But there were all of these like little things that I completely didn't really think about. Like, um, for example, getting the decision quality to be the absolute best that it can be um, on every decision, not only the investing decisions, but like decisions around how we operate the firm, decisions around how we engage with our entrepreneurs after we've invested, decisions around uh, investor relations, decisions around how you structure, you know, nuanced, nuanced terms in your, in your, in your funds or in your vehicles. Um, I, I didn't realize how many decisions uh, would have to be made on like an everyday basis, like I probably make 20 or 30 decisions a day um, of varying like importance. And one of the things that's tricky when you're actually operating and managing a venture capital firm is you can get lost in the small decisions that don't really matter. There are lots of decisions where, you know, you can undo it. Uh, if you get it wrong, you can sort of fix it. You can change this and you can change your mind. I think Bezos has talked about this a little bit. I really like this idea of one way like, doors, two way really doors. big decisions, and I think it's his. So I'm sort of aping yeah. it from him. This idea, but what are the few really big decisions that can't be reversed? Uh, and getting those right, and actually getting decision quality high, has been the the biggest challenge of of starting a firm because there was no there was no like process for how you make decisions day zero. Fascinating. Um, I would guess one of the most important decisions you've got to make, and I'm curious if you agree especially given your strategy to be highly concentrated, is when to follow on, when to pile in, when to double down. How do you make that decision? How do you get the conviction to, I mean, because the, the case against it's fairly clear, like the cost basis is higher. You're, you're now not as diversified. Um, you know, how do you make that decision as high as quality as you want it to be, Jeff? What have you learned there? We've learned that you have to underwrite it as if you're you're looking at the company for the first time, and so that's that that's kind of the that's the that's the mental model that we try to engineer here. And obviously, you're going to have a bias because you already know the company. And if you're if you're thinking about doing a preemptive follow-on financing, you're going to be you know probably positively biased if you're if you're actually even talking about it. You have to try as much as possible to re-underwrite it 
so where, where we have done this, where, you know, we've, we've done it with Flock Safety, we've done it with Vercel, we've done it with Rippling, um, we've done it with OpenAI, and, we're, and I think all of those are instances where we got it right. And in each of those instances, we did sort of a full process, a full new analysis with the ground truth today versus when we originally invested. And we re-underwrite every round, our bar is 10x cash on cash. And so that is like what we're trying to get high conviction on internally. So that's part one. Part two, one of the things we flexed over the years is just how the decisions ultimately get made. And where, where we've landed is actually consensus, just we don't believe in it here at Bedrock. And some firms have a consensus approach and it works really well for them. Our approach is, is not really about consensus anymore. It's about you have one decision maker. Wow. So if you if you don't love a deal, but another partner there does, they can pound the table and get it through. Am I hearing that right? Um, they can do a, yeah, they, 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 that has, that has happened and will continue to happen because look, the reality is I'm not, I'm the, the only GP here at the firm, but we have a extremely talented young team of three other folks on the investment team. And the, I, I do think that you sort of have to make investments to learn what works and what doesn't work. Now we don't want to lose money on these learning investments. So uh, I'm going to heavily weigh in on things. But for, you know, early stage pre-seed seed investing, yeah, like even if I'm not there on it, uh, I'll take a flyer on someone on the team because I believe in the team that we've assembled here. Got it. How do you think about when to dive in and do that work? You're talking about re-underwriting it, but are you doing it basically when the founder goes out to fundraise and you kind of look at it new? Do you try to preempt them going out and running a process? Because as your strategy is to concentrate all this capital on the best companies, how do you think about the timing of when to dive in and do that work? Uh, when something major has changed that like we think we've seen before other people, um, and so in practice, that means we typically are catalyzing these follow-on financing rounds. We're, we're making yeah. them happen earlier than they otherwise would. Sometimes at prices that, you know, might be a little bit ahead of where the business is at because we're, we get that ultra high conviction. And so, yep. you know, in the case of Vercel, uh, we were Series B investors. Uh, then the, the, and the, the worry we had with the, when we did the Series B was they had no enterprise business. It was all just this long tail of, of small um, small customers that were paying that tremendous usage, like insane love and adoption amongst the developer community, but they didn't have an enterprise sales motion or enterprise go to market. The minute we saw that snapping together and saw them landing enterprise contracts and sort of, um, you know, first half of 2021, we knew that all of the other pieces for a transcendent company were there and we leaned in and we preempted, catalyzed the Series C I think we invested 35 million. Uh, they ended up raising 100 million as part of that round. And that business continued to just grow um, astronomically since then. You know, similar story was true with Rippling, similar story true with Flock Safety. Uh, with Flock, actually, the thing we saw was when we initially invested, um, they were selling this, uh, this, this product initially to homeowners associations. And Garrett, the entrepreneur, and I would often talk about man, cracking police, cracking sales into um, actual like uh, police departments at the city, uh, state, federal level is just really freaking hard. And um, they spent like a year really trying to hone the playbook for how to do that. And then we saw them really starting to crack it 
uh, and, and, and ended up concentrating a lot more capital in that business in 2020 and then beyond uh, because we, we felt that people were just systematically um, underappreciating uh, once you crack police sales, like how sticky that can be, how huge a TAM that actually is. Like didn't want to repeat the mistake with Carta where it was like sort of thought the TAM was small, but it was actually massive. You know, think the same thing is true with Flock. And, uh, and then we, we, I think we had a unique view on crime being a really big problem in, in, in the United States uh, that, that, that maybe technology could help to solve. So, yeah. I, I want to, I just want to call attention to, to part of what, what it sounds like your process is here. You are paying such close attention to these businesses that you've already invested in that when something, something new happens, you can be on, you can be very, very early to take advantage of that. Cause if you wait, well, everybody starts to see that, right? You, and, and, and I, I don't know that, that seems a little, a little against the, the conventional wisdom of kind of like set it and forget it. And, you know, you know, you look at it again, if they, if they get another term sheet type, type of a mentality, right? That's a really good good point, Sterling. I, I, I do think we hyper-focus on, because we are so concentrated, we can actually keep in close touch with really all of our all of our core positions across all our all our funds. And yeah, when something changes, we really dig in and are like, okay, how material is this change? Is this a step change? If it's yeah. a step change, to what to what extent has the value of the business increased? Um and we, we want to be the earliest person to act on a step change. So I'd say like that, that's kind of the, the follow on strategy when we're, when we're preempting a follow on round, it's like, we decide there's a step change. We validate it through work with the company through diligence. And then we want to be the first to act on, on what that step change means. I think it's an exceptional process. And I, I think uh, it, it's very, very wise. Some of the other investors who who I really admire, they talk about it as like diligence starts after your first dollars go in if you're doing it right, because it's your chance to concentrate so much more money. But it takes it takes next level conviction because everybody else, you know, you want somebody else to price that and mark that up. You want somebody else to validate that the business is doing super well. And uh, I, I don't know, it takes, it just takes an extraordinary amount of, of conviction to follow that strategy. How did you, how do you have that at bedrock? Because it's either like concentration. It means a thing. It's either a spectacular right success or, or a spectacular wrong. failure. Yeah, exactly. Yep. What, wait, what do you say, Tyler? Are you stuck so, in there? I didn't hear it. Yeah, sorry. I was just agreeing with Sterling that you're either dead right or you're dead wrong when you're when you're following on to lead and not waiting for the market. So yeah, I love the question of how do you get to that conviction? Because you're going out on a limb. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're to just to be just to put a point on this, which you guys you guys are 100 percent right to put a point on this. If you're dead wrong, uh, your, your firm is dead probably. Yeah. If, you're, if you're putting, yeah. you know, in bedrock's yeah. in bedrock's case, we've got. Um, Something like fifty percent of our dollars that we've invested for in the entire history of the of the firm are in are in are in five companies. That's amazing. So that's that that is that is extreme capital concentration. Um, <laughs> look, I mean, it's I, I think it stems. You know, every every one of the companies we invest in is in some way a, re a real reflection of the entrepreneur. I think Bedrock's a reflection of of me and. 
I'm a, I'm a high conviction person. And, um, you know, I, when I, when I decide something, uh, I, I, I go after it a hundred percent and I'm going to give it my all. And I think we apply that in a different mode to the follow on investment where when we, when we, when we have conviction in an entrepreneur in a business, like we're willing to just go out on the limb. I think, I think a big part of us being able to get there though, beyond all the diligence, beyond all the analysis, beyond all the like customer calls, uh, when, when we're doing this capital concentration, it is, we feel like we've really underwritten the entrepreneur. And so we feel like we have a model for how that entrepreneur is going to react and manage through uh, the inevitable challenges that are going to, they're, they're going to um, hit them in the face down the road. Like I remember thinking with Parker at Rippling, when we did that big round, when the macro was crashing in 2022, after having been invested for many years in that business, um, one of the, one of the qualitative reasons why we did it was a feeling we had that in a world where the macro was extremely unstable and crashing, you needed someone like Parker who was going to be able to like navigate whatever crazy stuff was going to come that company's way. And that got proven right, like through the way he navigated the SPV crisis with catalyzing that round. You know, similarly in the case of OpenAI, like we, our thesis on Sam uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur has always been, Sam is just absolutely next level at talent. He's a talent magnet. I mean, every great entrepreneur is a talent magnet, but Sam is like another level of talent magnet. Um, and our belief was that he's just going to be able to get all of the best talent uh, to open AI. And that's really what matters. If you're, if you're going after AGI and these large language, mo large language models, and then ultimately the talent um, doing the petition to like bring Sam back, um, I think kind of helped that business navigate the craziness a few months ago. And so we we can concentrate capital more comfortably because we are building high conviction in the entrepreneur before we build high conviction in the company. Does that make sense? Makes tons of sense. Yes. You've said something twice, Jeff, that I would regret if I didn't ask follow up. And you said it on CNBC too. When all the news broke about Sam getting fired, you said you were zen about it. And you're like, you figured it would work out. Why? Where did that zenness come from? Because there's no way you could have known the team was going to rally and bring him back. Or, or was that really what you thought was going to happen? Where'd the comfort come from? Well, look, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a prophet, uh, but, but I, but I, uh, we, 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 we did have a sense that, uh, we did have a sense that you sort of want to wait and see, um, you know, wait and see how things unfold in certain situations. And that was, that was one of them. I think the comfort though, more just spiritually, esoterically came from, uh, there's how we want to operate, how we want to work as investors, as a business here at Bedrock is, we want to do everything in our power, everything in our power to make the right decisions, to do the right thing, wherever we have an ability to move the needle, to make a decision, wherever we have agency, we want to give it a hundred percent and know that we've left nothing, nothing on the field. We want to give it everything. And then there's just situations in the world where you really can't do anything about it. So yeah. in a situation where there's something crazy going on with this nonprofit board uh, that we're not on, and there's really actually not much we can do other than, you know, with 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 the company, maybe 
dialoguing or being a sounding board. There's not really much we can do. Um, we tend to be somewhat zen about it. And that was an instance where it's like, okay, this is going to play out. We really believe in Sam and uh, let's, let's give it a few days and see how it plays out. And it turns out that our belief was well-founded. Love that. Before, before we get into some of these hot takes, Jeff, um, I want to ask you one other question on investing. You, you recently said there's only 15 investors that know how to consistently make money for LPs. That's a very small number of investors. And maybe you're, you're using hyperbole. I don't know, but especially why did you, three of them are on this, on this call, you know, yeah. maybe, there's, maybe there's closer to 20. Maybe I underestimated it. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do these guys have guys and gals have in common, Jeff? Why did you say that? Uh, and what, what the observations stem from? You know, it's, it's, you, you, I, I do think it's just a way, way, way over staffed, over resourced, over funded, um, niche, uh, niche area of finance. If you think about what venture capital is, it's, it's kind of, there's, there are only a small number of companies that will ultimately truly change the arc of society, will truly change the world and will be highly profitable over decades. And that's kind of what you're looking for as a venture, as a venture capitalist. And actually what happened in the last cycle was uh, you had just a ton of crap companies dumped on the public markets on, and that's probably poisoned the well on, on, on exits for the, in the public markets for the next few years. But, uh, but what we try to do is what are the companies that are going to be around 20 years from now um, that are going to really endure can we get in extremely early and can we pick the few in every fund that are going to be the best of the best and concentrate dollars into that? And I think in order to do that, there's a level of like, you have to be comfortable with yourself. You have to understand different types of people. You have to not be ultra self-absorbed. You have to be open to being proven wrong, open to like overcoming biases, biases you might have had. You have to have the polymathic ability to like rebuild a model from scratch for every new business, every new entrepreneur you're meeting. And not many people on the planet have that. And so if you think about like who has that like first principles thinking that that polymathic sort of instinct um, and then decides to get into venture capital somehow and then is able to build enough of a track record over a long enough period of time where they actually have access to the best uh, venture investment opportunities, and then can effectively pick the best ones. That's not that many people. And then frankly, there always is just this issue of at a certain point, um, you, you're not motivated really by, by the money as much. You sort of like, like, yes, we all want to make great returns for ourselves and for our limited partners. But at a certain point, you have to be doing this for a reason beyond, uh, just the money. And I think in general in finance, um, most people are like super mercenary. And so the people who are actually, you know, beyond mercenary are actually more mission driven that are also polymaths that also have a track record that are also venture capitalists. That's a small number of people. <laughs> Love You've that. had a few of them on your podcast though. Like, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. Fund, Gary, Gary now at Y Combinator, you know, I, I count them amongst those 15. Well, we're hoping to get all fifteen in the next year or so. So we'll get. The we'll need a we'll need a list. Here. We we promise we won't share it. You just you just send us the list though. 
I actually don't know who they all are. I, you know, yeah. I've got maybe five or five or ten that I think are think are yeah. on there, but I don't know who they all are. And quite honestly, yeah. that that the, the, it rotates, it rotates. You know, it's not it's not like it's a set in stone list forever. Like, you know, there's probably one or two new folks who break break onto it every every you know three or four years, and people rotate off of it. I mean, if you just think about it pragmatically, it makes all the sense in the world. You you know how many companies that are started end up making a dent in the world. It's a very finite number. And, you know, like it, it stands to reason that it's the same thing if you're building this iconic franchise that can repeatably raise funds, deploy, return capital. There, It's just not that many people on the planet. It just isn't. All right, last 10 minutes or so, let's get into some hot takes and see if we can have some fun discussion here. Um, there's a theme of some of your hot takes, Jeff. I'm curious what you, th- what you think of this uh, <laughs> categorization. One of the themes, I think, is almost like this. You've got a sense that things are potentially going to go south, uh, and, and you're all, you have a little bit of a doomer prepper in you. You've predicted hyperinflation. You've predicted uh, Franz Ferdinand moment for World War III. Um, you know, I think you've tweeted about creating a farm and getting off grid. Like, where, where's this coming from? Why do you feel this way? No, I, I think I think it was. I think I have a. I think I have a general. I think I have a general sense that we were things were pretty stable societally for a long time, and then there's a there's a there's a way in which the combination of um, social media usage, the, the degree to which folks are sort of being algorithmically, brains are being sort of algorithmically rewired, plus some of the macro stuff that's happened, starting really with COVID, um, now layering in a lot of geopolitical um, uncertainty in both the East and in Europe on with Russia, Ukraine. Uh, I, I do just think that uh, there's just going to be much change. There'll be a lot more change than people think um, through this combination of, of sort of technology and geopolitics. And, and so I generally think there's just going to be a lot more change. And, uh, and I think that that's going to be very hard for folks to navigate. There's, there's, almost a, there's almost a way in which you either want to be a really um, small, tight-knit, team and small in a business context, small tight knit team to navigate this, or you want to be like a huge oil tanker that just can't sink. <laughs> like you want to be just a massive organization. But I think sort of a mid-size, mid-sized companies are gonna gonna have a, a tough time. And then I think on an individual level, um I I just think you know people have different base perceptions of reality now in a way that I just don't think has been as true historically in my lifetime. I I always think it's fascinating because when you can't really agree on what facts are or what truth is, like, where do you go from there? And that seems to be, from my point of view, one of the interesting things that's happened over the last few years is if I don't like what you're saying, I just I just brush it off. It doesn't matter if it's a fact. I just consider that to be Jeff's opinion. And and when we can't debate from a basis of fact and reality, things get weird fast. Yeah, exactly. And and that that is that is where we're at societally. So that yeah, that, that is scary. 
everyone's and, watching their own movie almost and we're convinced yeah. our movie's right and social media is confusing it even more and to your point geopolitical tensions are not helping so we're all on different pages i think that's the root cause or at least part of it you talked about the algorithmic rewiring of brains and it's it's a it's a very eloquent way of saying it what do you think? Would you would you ban, you know, TikTok? What do you think about the future of these social media companies and their kind of their role in in society? How do you think about that? Well, actually, it was I think one of the first people to say we should ban TikTok uh, back in 2020 when one of my first temp checks, my short video series that that I, I sunsetted uh, earlier this year. Uh, but I said it in 2020 that we really should ban TikTok. Uh, so yeah, I I I. I don't actually necessarily know that it's ever going to happen, uh, but I I certainly think that the power that that algorithm has to shape the minds of its users is unparalleled, um, and I think it's very scary that it's you know uh, affiliated. The U.S. company at least has historically been affiliated with one of our geopolitical you know the U.S.'s primary geopolitical rivals. That's that's alarming. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think all of these things are unhealthy to a, if used, if, if overused, I think X is pretty unhealthy. If used too much, you know, I, I sometimes use a little bit too much then I have to pull myself back. You know, I think Instagram is, is very unhealthy. If, if used, if, if overused, I think anything to the extreme, um, on, on social media, on algorithmic engagement, I think, I think can be, can be pretty unhealthy. And we, we don't know exactly how to how to navigate this as a society. It's going to take probably decades. You know, it took a long time to figure out how to navigate the printing press. It's going to take a really long time to figure out how we navigate this while whilst you know regaining our health societally. I think is, is going to be very challenging over the next few decades. Jeff, can we get your prediction on the venture capital space, kind of as a whole? You've shared that you think it's way overstaffed, overfunded. You have people like Josh at Lux saying he thinks half of firms could disappear. How do you think this this whole industry shakes out over the next few years? What will it look like in 2030? I think the, I think it's just the winners win even more. And so I think there's there's still a there's still an opportunity to become, you know, if you're an emerging manager or get or new at this, you still do actually have a window to to become a quote unquote winner. Um, as a young person getting into, into venture today, uh, there still is a window, but it's just this bifurcation where you just have the entire bottom 50%, uh, probably goes away, but then the winners win even more because the, the dynamic is, I, I don't think like the limited partner demand for venture has or is going away. And so I, I just think you somehow have more AUM concentrated with sort of fewer managers. And historically, the way that firms have done that is you sort of scale up the team really significantly as you scale up AUM. And I think the real trick, and I think that degrades returns. I think the more investors you have on the team, the worse the returns will be for like a whole set of reasons that I could do a sidebar on, but we probably don't have time. Um, so the, the, the actual thing is, how do you scale AUM without adding too many people to the investment team? Gosh, I actually would love a mini sidebar on that. Um, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, because I mean, like well, the argument, Jeff, would be it's not the headcount that matters. It's the AUM that you have to return. And the larger the fund size, the harder it is to do that, which is why Founders Fund and others are cutting their fund size. So why is it? why are you saying it's the headcount? 
Well, I think it's it might, it might be both, and so there. So let let's let's sort of get at this from a few different angles. I'd say on the theme size, like I said earlier, like you kind of have to make investments to learn how to invest, and so you can't really have a functioning. You can't have a functional investment team unless folks are empowered to uh, at least sort of you know lead you know maybe one deal per fund or something, and if you have an investment team of 40, 50, 60 people, uh, which, which some firms do, I think there is just this incentive to deploy the capital. You have to get the cash out the door and that's completely the wrong incentive. And in fact, it's probably much better to have a, the reverse of that where actually you get rewarded, you get more carry, you get bonus or whatever uh, by, by not investing. That's probably like the right incentive structure, but no, no, no junior VCs want to do that. So I think scaling up the teams is, is, is really dangerous. And then in practice, you can't really scale AUM that much unless you really do scale up your team because LPs want to see a certain, you know, AUM to investment team member ratio, uh, investment partner ratio. So I think that's that's one problem. I think your point is right, though. Yeah, returns do degrade over a certain fund size. And so I think it is inevitable that um, returns will degrade in, in, in venture because I... I, again, and I, I don't think the LP demand for venture is going away. I think there's a few years right now where there's it's going to be really hard. But I, I think that we come out, you know, four or five years from now, this back where we were in like 2020, uh, before it got 2021 levels crazy, but LP still want to put money into this asset class. And um, there's going to be fewer firms and fewer fewer managers that survive the shakeout that we're in for now. So I don't know, something, something's going to give, and I think it's probably going to be returns to grade. So we've got a couple questions that we, we wrap up with typically, Jeff, but I want to ask one before we get to that. You have, Bedrock has some of the most iconic founders of like our generation, and that's on, they're only going to, to get more and more prevalent as, as time goes on. How do you convince people like that to take your your money over somebody else's, to work with you over somebody else, what what works? Well, it was harder when we were just getting started, and honestly, all that worked, all that we had going for us back then was was interpersonal interpersonal chemistry and showing high conviction. So, you know, in the case of Flock Safety, I got on a plane to Atlanta. We uh, the company had just closed their Series A. We'd missed it by like a few weeks. And we, you know, sort of sat in a conference room, Garrett and I, and talked about what could you do with an additional $10 million and then ultimately catalyze a sort of preemptive Series A1 uh, at a $60 million valuation back in 2018. And there's stories like that of like things we had to do in the early days uh, to really uh, get entrepreneurs to take us seriously to work with us. At this point, we're in a privileged position. I, I hate the word privilege. We're in a, in a good position, a blessed position, Sterling. Because as you said, we do now have these transcendent entrepreneurs in the portfolio that other folks can call for references, et cetera. So we're finally at the point now, six years in, where we have that, like, like every firm talks about like flywheel. It's so hard to get a flywheel. And then once you have it, things just actually get a lot easier uh, in terms of access. And, and we finally have the flywheel. Amazing. All right. Uh, we do have a couple questions, but I, I have one more too. You tweeted, <laughs> numbers go up, numbers go down, but your vibe is your constant. 
What's your vibe, Jeff? Why do you always talk about vibe and you're not a venture capitalist? That seems to be part of your your ethos. What does that mean? Well, the, the vibe thing I talk about it because it's something no one can compete with me on because yeah. so, sort of your 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 own vibe as a as a human, your own your vibrancy, your your the way that you are in the world, that's that's unique to you as an individual, and and so um, you know it's I'm, certainly I'm not going to be for everyone, but. Uh, if there's gonna, if there's interpersonal chemistry, if, if things resonate, it can be a very powerful partnership with entrepreneurs. So, and then the not a VC thing, I, I really do think that it's an industry that um, is 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 insecurity is kind of an emergent property of the venture capital industry. And so, you, you most of the VCs have never started a company. Um, they've never been an entrepreneur themselves. Uh, they are in these very Game of Thrones-like firms where you sort of are always jockeying for, you know, one incremental degree more influence or power to like have a little bit more input on decisions. And you have these really long feedback cycles on whether the investments you've made as a partner are actually going to be good investments or going to work. And you're not actually really building anything. Long-winded way of saying, it's pretty hard to self-actualize as a venture capitalist. And through the process of building Bedrock, I do actually feel like I've, in a professional sense, self-actualized, and I'm not insecure, and therefore I don't consider myself to be a VC. All right. And by the way, I, I, I think that's spot on. It's the theme of the whole convo, honestly. Don't you both think? Like, it's N of one authenticity is what attracts you to the right person, both as an investor and an operator. I think that's the theme that tied the whole thing together. Who's an investor that you admire most? Who's an operator that you admire most? And then I'll, we'll pause there. And if you can't pick one, that's fine. But who do you look up to in both? Um, I, I'd say on the investor side, I actually think um, think Bezos is an incredible capital allocator. Um, I haven't had the privilege of like sitting down with him one on one, but um, I, I just think like the AWS move that he made in like two thousand eight, two thousand nine was 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 genius. I think all of the ways in which Amazon strategically invested to expand their their surface area. I respect that, like when you have that much wealth to just like go for it on like a moonshot, literally thing with Blue Origin. Even though like Elon probably is like going to eat his lunch, I respect that he's doing that later in his career. And and so I, he's an investor that I look up to. I, although I don't think people really think of him as, as an investor. Um, and then what was the second question? I forgot. I sort of read uh, Operator. An operator you really admire. We've talked, talked about, about the oh, four I mean, corners. We maybe, we maybe should make Jeff go outside of his portfolio, though. So we asked this question to everybody, Jeff, and Parker is far and away the one that the most people point to. Really? Okay, yes. that's, that's awesome. Okay, totally outside my portfolio, where like we have no bedrock exposure, would be Gwen Shotwell at SpaceX. She's mm. the COO of SpaceX. And is is has really just been, I think, instrumental in that company's success. Uh, so she would be an, an operator I admire. Uh, who Bedrock has no exposure to to her, her her amazing work at SpaceX. So Jeff, we we have a term, and it's called the Golden Spur. And it's like, what makes you the way you are? What is your underlying motivation for showing up and doing this? And so, what's your what's your Golden Spur, Jeff? Why why are you the way that you are? Wow. I mean, I, I think a lot of it stems back to childhood uh, and sort of specific experiences I had with I had a pretty 
difficult childhood, a pretty difficult family. I love my parents very much. Things weren't always easy for us. And um, I think I had to tease out very early in my life, like how to find the truth about things, uh, how to figure out what's true versus what's a lie um, as a sort of a unique uh, characteristic of my, my upbringing. Uh, and, and that's really led me on this quest for truth seeking that kind of has been my thing. Um, and the way it manifests professionally is, is through the, the, the not a venture capital stuff. Um, but, uh, but, but that, that, that's a big piece of it. Um, and then the other thing is like, I grew up in circumstances, like my parents were both public school teachers, super middle class. I didn't start out my career in tech. I was working at Procter and Gamble uh, in brand management. So I had a really, I took the long way around to get into venture capital, to get into technology. And at this point, I just feel like everything's sort of bonus round. Like it's just, it's all just for the love of like what, what we get to do every day. And, and that's like powerfully, uh, it, it gives you a lot of agency when you're like, okay, great. This is, this is bonus round. Like this is, this is like more than I ever would have dreamed like I'd be doing at this point in my life. So that's, that's motivating as well. All right, Sterling, let's, let's recap. What are your top few takeaways from Mr. Jeff? I think the, the number one thing that stands out to me is the importance of conviction and why, why build a business or a strategy around a lack, like hedging your bets. And, and Jeff has to be one of the highest conviction guys you've ever met. He, in, in every part of his life, right? He, he, he gets conviction and he, and he acts on it. And if he's right, he's right. And if he's wrong, he's wrong. And, and it le it's led to some really cool learnings. And I think that was super impactful for me. I think that's probably the top one. Uh, or this, we talked about it at the end, this theme of authenticity. It reminds me of a Naval tweet of you escape competition through authenticity. And Jeff kind of just oozes this, he's comfortable in his own skin, he's going to say what he wants, he's going to tweet what he wants, and he's going to attract people that are attracted to that. And that authenticity ends up being kind of a moat for your entire life. Well, because I actually think those are the same thing. The, the conviction and the authenticity, it's the same word, it's the same principle that we're talking about here, right? Totally agree. The conviction piece is the follow-up to when you're, when you're authentic, you're able to do things with boldness. I think that's the message you're saying. Totally, totally. Um, I thought it was, I was very curious just because Bedrock does have so many marquee founders at this point, people who are building these, these generational and, and amazing companies. And it, it was, it's always interesting how people diagnose that. And for him, it's just a lot of time in the saddle, getting to know these people, getting to understand them. And he doesn't, he's not trying to make them all look the same and sound the same. He's just trying to see if they uniquely have what it takes to go out and, and bend the curve, dent the world a little bit. Yeah, my last thing uh, that maybe I'd connect to other episodes is like, where's the alpha here? And to me, I would say Jeff's got alpha in identifying exceptional founders, probably better than others, largely due to the work that he puts in and getting to know them. And then secondly, there's this, this theme he kept coming back to of, if he identifies a step change quickly, he'll catalyze around. You call it preempting, whatever. But he's creating a round that he leads. 
that he's not yeah. waiting for the market to get to consensus. He yeah. leads, so he's non-consensus. Well, and and you heard him. He said, you know, sometimes what that means is I have to be a little more Pay aggressive on price. price. I have to yep. go a little earlier. And so there's these two buckets of like a reactive investor and a, and a predictive investor. And he wants to be a predictive investor. And he knows that that means you actually have to predict. And then you have to be correct. And, yep. and he's got, and he's got a, and I, I really, I really thought that was all fascinating. And he had clear eyes about if he's wrong about this stuff, yep. your firm dies. Like yep. he, he's betting the firm in the same way Reed Hastings bet Netflix when Andrew Ratcliffe was talking about that. Totally. He has that founder mentality. <laughs>